All right, today we are going to continue our study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So just a quick refresher. Chapter one, a couple weeks ago, Andy laid out for us sort of how, what this letter was for, who wrote it, who he wrote it to, that it was intended to be a circular letter that went to a bunch of churches and not just to one. And I uh, talked about what it means to be chosen and to see other people as chosen as well. Chapter two, we talked about salvation by grace through faith and that God is, is saving us so that he can create one new humanity through, through which all believers in Jesus are united. And that's the place where God wants to live. That place is not a geographic place, but it is a reality created by those who live um, in communion with others who, who follow Jesus. And that's the place where God, God wants to live. He wants to move into that community. So that's where we are as we pick up chapter three today. But we're gonna have to kind of recover some of this ground to help us understand, because Paul's gonna make a, a, a turn here at chapter four, verse one, which we'll get to in a bit, that is, is a, a kind of a linchpin for the whole letter. It's gonna turn in a different direction. So um, we're gonna get to that in a minute. So here's, here's what I, I wanna start with, is that we, we sort of have different ideas about what salvation really means or what it means to be saved by grace through faith. So if you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about salvation this week, which I'm guessing most of you probably did not, um, that's, that's why I'm here. I did it for you. So here's, here's what I think you might think if you spent some time thinking about salvation, okay? I got to put myself in your shoes. So here's what some people think is I, I am saved by grace through faith. This is God's work. All of this is true. And because of that, I, there's nothing at all I need to do. I, I don't, it doesn't actually matter how I live. It doesn't matter how I talk to people. It doesn't matter what I do with my time or my money. Like none of that actually matters because God has already saved me by grace through faith. And I, I, it doesn't matter what I do. That's, that's one perspective. And if you go to the other end of the spectrum on what it means to be saved by grace, uh, we have uh, this mentality that, well, I'm not currently the kind of person that God probably wants in this family. So I need to work on myself. I need to get, I need to get better. I need to become a better person. Uh, I need to get some things out of my life and get some better habits so that I can be the kind of person that God wants to save by grace through faith. So on one end, you have this like, okay, God's done all the work. I, there's actually zero things that I need to do uh, in, as a part of God's family. And on the other side, you have this like, I sort of need to work on myself so I can become the kind of person that can walk into a church and not get struck by lightning, you know? So um, here's the deal. I think Paul's gospel is, is not either one of those. I, I think the gospel that he is, is preaching and that he learned from Jesus uh, doesn't really match up well with either one of those ideas. Um, I think there, there's truth on both sides of that, and that's why we sort of get caught up in those ways of thinking. But the way that I think about being saved by grace through faith is um, my college soccer team. Um, that, that's my uh, saved by grace through faith story. Um, it's not a super spiritual story. It really is about college soccer. So um, I went to a very small college and um, when it came time for tryouts for the soccer team, they sort of invited anyone who wanted to play soccer to come and join the team. And they had 16 jerseys and the prayer was just get us 16 people. We don't care if they're male or female. I mean, we had, we had both on our team. We don't care. if No one ever asked me when I went out for the team, have you ever played soccer before? That didn't come up in the conversation, believe it or not. No one asked me like even crazier questions like, what position do you play? 
I'm like, position? Uh, I know one, position goalie? That's not, okay. So no one asked me, can you run 100 yards without falling over? No one asked me that because I would have not made the team. I, I was given a jersey by grace, right? So I didn't have to do anything to earn it. I didn't have to prove that I could play. I didn't have to pass any kind. I didn't have to pass a physical. I think that was like a liability thing. But other than that, I didn't have to do anything. I was, I was given a spot on the team by grace. But after I got my jersey, then what did I do? Did I have to go to practice? Yes. Did I have to show up at the games? Yes. Did I have to play the whole game even if we were down by 10 goals? Yes, I did. It happened regularly. <laughs> but I still had to finish out the game, right? But what I did uh, once I got my jersey is I worked really hard. I mean, I ran more than, than I had ever run before in my life because soccer is stupid amount of running, if you don't know this. I, I ran so much. I, I, I talked to my coach a lot about how to be a better soccer player. He wasn't actually an official coach, so he didn't know anything either. He put me in a defensive position called sweeper, and he basically said, if anyone comes anywhere near you and you can get them, get them. Like, just get them. I was like, what do you mean get him? He's like, oh, you'll figure it out. Just get him. So a couple yellow cards, maybe a red card later, and I figured it out. So once I got on the team, I wanted to do well because I wanted to represent my team well. I didn't want to let my teammates down. These were my friends. I wanted to represent our college well. So I worked hard after I got the jersey because I wanted to represent the jersey well. So that's, that's sort of my example of what I think Paul's gospel is, is communicating about what it means to be saved by grace through faith. We don't earn a spot into the kingdom of God. God invites us and gives us a seat at the table. And then because we have a seat at the table, we're like, I, I gotta be all in with this. I, I, have to, I have to show that I'm grateful for this opportunity and do my very best. And this is what Paul's gonna get to uh, when we, he gets to chapter four, verse one. Before that, so I, I do want us to cover chapter three here. We're gonna do it in two parts, one now and one at the end of the message. The first part of chapter three, Paul sort of starts by saying, um, hey, just so you all know, I'm in jail right now. I'm in prison um, for, the, for the gospel. So Paul communicates because he believed that God had put a specific call on his life to uh, communicate what he calls the mystery of the gospel. So, so Paul's supposed to communicate the mystery of the gospel. That's his job. And in doing so, he gets arrested and put in prison for many years. Um, if you wanna read the story about how Paul ended up in prison, go to Acts 21. That story's recorded right there in, in Acts 21. You can see how Paul got into prison so that he could write Ephesians. Now, this is one of those cool things you look at and you go, was it bad for, for God's number one missionary to get thrown in jail? Sounds bad. Is it good that we have Ephesians? That's good. Those two things had to go together, right? So Paul's in prison for the mystery of the gospel. Now, a lot of us, when we read a phrase like mystery of the gospel in the Bible, our brains just kind of turn off. We're like, oh, that's, that's over my head. That's above me. That's, that's above my pay grade. I, don't, I didn't go to Bible college. I don't know what to do with the mystery of the gospel. But thankfully, it's not supposed to be confusing for us. Paul actually explains it really clearly. So chapter three, verse six, Paul lays out exactly what the mystery is. He says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. So Paul says, here's the mystery. 
It's not actually a secret. So we, sometimes we get secret and mystery confused and we think, well, a mystery means God is keeping this information back from us. We're not supposed to know this and you have to be at a certain level. You know, maybe Paul can get the secrets or maybe Adam can get the secrets. Probably Andy gets the secrets, but like not everybody else. No, that's not actually how uh, the mystery of the gospel works. It was just, people just didn't get it. They just didn't understand it. It wasn't a secret. And Paul's gonna explain it. That's his job is to explain it. But Paul is gonna tell them that the mystery of the gospel has to do with something that they believed was part of God's plan, but they did not know how it was gonna work. So God laid out from early on in the Bible that it was his plan for uh, him to have a relationship with all people. But he chose one specific people group to have this relationship with, this covenant relationship with. He went to Abraham and he, he said, I'm gonna have a covenant relationship with you and your descendants. But one day I'm gonna have a, this relationship with all people. And that was the part that for hundreds of years, the Jews just didn't, didn't get and didn't understand and sometimes just ignored because it didn't make sense to them. But I want us to see kind of how he laid out the foundation for this mystery and then um, how he explains to them like, okay, you didn't get it, but now it should be pretty obvious when you look at all of this. So we're gonna look at a few of these um, passages from the Hebrew scriptures that explain this mystery or set it up anyway. So from Genesis chapter 12, this is God's first recorded conversation with Abraham where he's going to explain to him about this covenant relationship. Here's what he says. I, oh yeah, by the way, if you're new here, Sometimes there's underlined words on the screen. That's your part. This is participation, church. So uh, that's your part. Please read that aloud. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And so God tells Abraham, someday through your descendants, I'm gonna bless every people group on the planet. Someday. Do you think Abraham understood what that meant and what that was gonna look like? Of course not. It was a mystery to him. It was a promise and he believed it, but he didn't understand it. Have you ever been in a situation where you believe God has made a promise and you believe it, but you don't understand it? Yes, me too. Happens all the time. Okay, uh, God's gonna continue. He's just gonna repeat this multiple times throughout scripture. In Genesis 22, he's talking to Abraham again after um, uh, his son Isaac was offered on a, as a sacrifice, which God didn't let him go through with. Read that later. Um, Genesis twenty two eighteen. And through your offspring, because you have obeyed me. Again, God reiterates this promise. He repeats it. When God repeats anything in scripture, I mean, this is serious business, okay? He doesn't waste words. So if he repeats it, it's, it's really important. All nations on earth. Then we get to Psalm uh, 86, nine. Lord, they will bring glory to your name. All nations will worship God. Isaiah 9, two, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. This is an important image that we see throughout scripture, this image of darkness as the place where God is not and light as the place where God is. And the way we often think about it is, well, the people in the dark should come to the light, shouldn't they? Like, that, don't they want the light? Shouldn't they just go to the light? But what the prophet is saying is, the light is gonna go to them. The light is gonna go into the darkness, right? And this is a prophecy we believe about the Messiah. We're gonna get to this in Advent season next month that 
this was talking about Jesus coming to earth, the light coming to the darkness. Uh, Isaiah 49, six, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Hosea chapter two, God is speaking through Hosea about planting Israel uh, in the land. He says, I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. And they will say, you are my God. There, there were really t- two categories of people in the world for the Jews. There were descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, God's family, God's people, and then there was everybody else. So there was, there was God's people and there was not God's people. And God is, is telling them, here's what's gonna happen. I'm, I'm gonna call those people that you call not my people, I'm gonna call them my people. And, and they're gonna call me their God. So you, you put all this together and you think, surely the... Surely the Jews of Jesus' day would have understood that God was going to remake this covenant to include all people. But when it happens, the the Jews didn't really get it. They they had a real struggle with this mystery and the way that it was revealed. And Paul's job is sort of to explain it. So what we see happen is in the early stages of the church, when the gospel has gone out to the Jews. It's, it's all over Jerusalem. The church is growing in Jerusalem. It begins to extend beyond Jerusalem and the apostles are having interactions with non-Jewish people. And uh, Paul in Acts chapter 13 is speaking to a group of Gentiles and he quotes Isaiah 49, 6, which we just read. I will make you a light for the Gentiles. And when he quotes that, here's what happens. After uh, Paul does this, he says, when the Gentiles heard this, And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So you get this picture uh, throughout the Hebrew scriptures that God wants to invite all people into his family. And then Paul is on the cutting edge of doing that in the book of Acts. And you see the Gentiles responding to this. This is the mystery of the gospel. This is exactly what Paul means when if we go back to Chapter three, verse six, he says, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and shares together in the promise of Jesus Christ. So Paul spends the first three chapters laying out all of this that, hey, you know, you were chosen and you were saved by grace through faith because God is creating this one new humanity because he wants to dwell among his people. And, and then Paul's like, all right, now we have to talk about your part. This is all God's stuff. God has done all of this. He chose you. He saved you. He made you alive. He raised you up. He's creating this new humanity. Now, what are, what are you supposed to do? And this is where Paul uh, turns the corner. Ephesians 4.1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Paul says, all right, you, you know what God is up to. You know what God's goal is. His, his mission is to create this group of people who collectively reflect his nature and character accurately to the world around them. That's the church. The church is supposed to be this collection of disciples of Jesus who together reflect the nature and character of God to the world around us. People should be able to look at the church, Paul says, and see what God is like. Sounds great, doesn't it? Can we have a moment of honesty and ask this question? Do people always see the accurate reflection of God's nature and character when they look at the church? No, 
No, unfortunately, it's not true. It's not true of this church. It's not true of any church that I know of. We're, we're not there yet. But Paul's laying it out. This is, this is where we're going. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling, this calling to reflect the nature and character of God to the world. Now we're gonna talk about what that looks like. How can you do that? So Paul is gonna start in uh, chapter four of laying out this strategy for the church to be able to reflect the nature and character of God to the world so that as God dwells among his people, more and more people um, are brought into the family. That's, that's the mission. And he starts with, his starting point, the foundation for all of this is unity. Unity among believers. You guys have to be united for this to work. That's what Paul says. So um, I'll show you what this looks like um, in a little uh, picture. I like pictures. Um, I like books with pictures. So um, if you need me to come over and read to your kids, those are my kind of books, okay? Um, so this is, this is me and you both moving in the direction of Jesus-centered living. That's how we talk about our job as disciples of Jesus to, to reflect the nature and character of God to the world. We're moving in the direction of Jesus-centered living. So if I'm moving towards Jesus-centered living and you're moving towards Jesus-centered living, what is happening to us? We are getting closer together, right? We're getting closer to each other because we're both moving in the same direction. Even though you and I start at different places, we don't have the same history. We have different backgrounds. We have different things from our past. But if we're moving towards Jesus together, then we're coming closer to each other. Thus, our unity is growing, getting stronger, right? You see that? This is what Paul's gonna lay out uh, in the next few verses. Let's look at um, chapter four, verses two through six. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So um, see a lot of unity language there. Paul is saying like this oneness is who we are and where we're going at the same time. But I love how he sort of gives this preamble. So verse one, he says, live a life worthy of the calling you receive. Verse three, he's gonna start talking about unity and how um, you're supposed to be united with each other. But right there in the middle in verse two, he says, okay, if this is gonna work, if you guys have any shot at unity, you're gonna have to be humble and gentle and patient with each other, right? Because we know how people are. We, we get prideful, we get selfish, we lose patience, we get frustrated, all of those things are gonna inhibit our progress toward unity. So Paul starts by saying, all right, okay, unity's the goal. But if we're gonna move in that direction, you are gonna have to be humble and gentle and patient with the people around you. That's kind of a good motto for your family too. If you wanna just put that up on the wall in the kitchen, it's probably a pretty good model for your family. If everybody starts with humility, gentleness, and patience, um, we'll, we'll be doing pretty well. Then he goes into... Um, what unity means, and he starts to lay this foundation for unity. How can a diverse group of people, and the, the, the group of people Paul is talking to is much more diverse than the group of people I'm talking to today. I mean, we're talking about Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, slaves and free, masters, merchants, everybody in the community was sort of mashed together in these churches in a way that was really jolting for those who were used to a more structured society. And so Paul says to these people, you can be united. 
And they're looking around going, I am so different from so many people here. How can I possibly be united with them? And then he lays out these eternal realities that allow people who are different from each other to be united. So here's the eternal realities. There is one body, he says, one body. There, there are not, there's not like the, you know, the body of Christ at Cicero Christian Church and then there's a different body of Christ at you know, White River North and a different body of Christ at Arcadia Brethren Church. Like, no, this is one, you're all one body. And, and put, you can put different names on it if you want to, but it doesn't change the fact that everyone who calls Jesus Lord is a part of one body. Not, not 100 bodies, not a body for every denomination, but one body, right? He says there's one spirit. There's not a spirit, a Holy Spirit for you and a Holy Spirit for me. There's not a Holy Spirit for Cicero Christian Church and a different one for the Catholic Church. There's not a, there's not a different Holy Spirit. There's one spirit. And, and all of us who follow Jesus are responding to the exact same spirit of God. There's one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. These are eternal realities. They don't change. And this is what your unity is based on. And the trouble we get in as a church is when we start to base unity on things that are not on this list. We start to make unity about, well, these people don't really think like I do politically, so I don't think I can be united with them. Paul's like, that's not on the list. You can't make that a test of unity. Like, well, these people, I mean, they kind of, they don't, they don't, get as excited in worship as, as I do. I don't know if you guys know this, but there are churches that get a lot more excited physically in worship than what we do typically around here. You're welcome to do that if you want to. But um, typically, we're pretty calm, and, and there are churches that are different, right? And, and some people will go, well, they, they just don't worship like I do. I don't think we can be united. And Paul's like, that's not on the list. Like, whether you raise your hands or shout amen in a service is not on the list of eternal realities that are the foundation for unity, Right? Here's the big one, which uh, we, you, you can uh, talk to me about later if this one doesn't make sense or you disagree with me, but our interpretation of Scripture is not on this list. It's not a requirement for unity. Our belief that Scripture is divine, that it's from God, and it's for us, that we're gonna stand pretty solid on. That's one faith. But our interpretation of Scripture is not a requirement for unity. You and I can see this passage and read it and think that it, you might think it means this and I might think it means that. That is, that is not a reason for division because it's not unchanging. My interpretation of scripture has changed as I have grown in wisdom and maturity and understanding of God's word. My interpretations have changed because I have a deeper understanding. My guess is yours have too. So how can we base unity on something that changes as we grow? We can't. So here's, here's what happens sometimes in churches. A, a, a church leadership will say, hey, we, we have grown in our understanding of scripture. This is, this is now our interpretation. This is what we, we believe is, is the best interpretation and application of this scripture at this time. And you might go, well, I don't, I don't see it that way. I don't, think we can, I don't think we can worship together. I don't think we can be family anymore. And Paul would go, that's not on the list. I mean, that's not a reason to separate from your family. So again, like if you can, you can disagree with that and we can talk about it later. Um, I'd love to actually, it's kind of fun conversation. But what Paul is doing is establishing this foundation of these eternal realities that 
give us a reason to be united even if we're different, which we are, different. Then he's gonna talk about contribution. He's gonna explain to them that if this unity is gonna be productive, if it's gonna reflect the nature and character of God to the world around us in an accurate way, then everyone, everyone, everyone has to contribute. Everyone has to pitch in. Everyone has to do their part. So he, he begins by laying this out, um, verses 11 through 13. Let's read this. He says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers so that the body of Christ may be built up and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay, let me start at the end and I wanna back up. Uh, this phrase, attaining to the whole measure of fullness of Christ is somewhat intimidating because we interpret this as uh, individuals, like individualistically, where we say, oh, I'm supposed to attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's never gonna happen. Like I'm so far away from that, I can't even see it from here. I don't even know what he means by the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What Paul means is that this is something we do together. It's not something you do on your own. Like you can't, you personally, cannot attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ on your own. It's something we do collectively and it's something that we move towards. We're moving towards this. We're not there yet. And this is the only way actually to reflect God's nature and character to the world accurately. It's the only way. Without Jesus being the center of our lives, we will not reflect the nature and character of God accurately to the world because Jesus is the only one who ever did it. Jesus is the only one who ever through his life reflected the nature and character of God to the world accurately. He's the only one. So if we have any shot, it's gonna be that we are moving towards Jesus-centered living, that we are collectively moving towards attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So that's, that's what he means by that. Uh, he lays out these, I mean, this is very strategic. He lays out these five different roles in the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He says, God has gifted people in your church family with these gifts of apostleship, evangelism, prophecy, um, pastoring, teaching. Pastor is really the word for shepherd, shepherding and teaching. He says, God has gifted these people with, with these specific gifts for a very particular reason. And the reason is so they can equip you to do ministry. You're like, wait a minute, Paul. I thought that's what we paid them for, to do the ministry. And Paul's like, well, I mean, you can pay him or not pay him. It doesn't matter to me. It matters to me. But it didn't matter to Paul. But he, he said their job is not to do the ministry, but to equip you to do the ministry. And so that's, that's my job, is to equip you to do ministry. So are you getting the sense that everyone has to contribute, that every part of the body has something equal and valid to offer? And when I say equal, I mean equal. I really appreciate Pastor Appreciation Month. It is, um, October was that. Um, so please stop sending me Oreos. Okay, let me just show you where I'm at. Uh, Y'all people are crazy. I feel like this is some kind of conspiracy to kill me with kindness. Um, and, and you have to know that there was a second case. You see the case at the bottom? There were two of those. Um, you only see one for some reason. I don't know. I really, this, it makes me feel so appreciated and loved. And, and I know Andy and Amber and, and Matthew all feel the same. But it also concerns me that, that we're creating some kind of separation between our pastoral staff and the rest of the church family, as though what we do is more important than what you do. And I just wanna be clear, I don't think Paul would agree with that. 
what, what we do is not more important than what you do. We have a different role for sure. It's to equip God's people for ministry, but it's not more important than what you do. And some of you are like, well, I don't do anything. Well, that's a problem. We need to talk about that too. Because everyone is supposed to contribute, right? But what you do matters. And so, I, you know, we would have congregation appreciation month, the other 11 months of the year. Let's do that. You're all getting Oreos. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's how it's supposed to work. We all pitch in. And so Paul talks about gifts here. He talks about spiritual gifts in other places and in, in other letters. And so this is a concept he wants the church to get that if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. And along with the Spirit of God comes a gift that you are supposed to use to contribute to your church family. And, and there's a, there's a wide range of these. When Paul lists out these gifts, he never lists them the same way twice. There's different lists and different gifts. And what he wants you to do is to, to kind of, you know, think through this, pray through this, and understand what your gifts are so that your gifts and your passions match up in a way that you can contribute. It's important that your gifts and passions match up because um, I, for example, uh, have a passion for singing. I like to sing. Um, and I do not have a talent for singing. So my gifts and my passions don't line up there. I shouldn't necessarily do that, right? Um, so match up your gifts and your passions so that you can contribute. If you don't know much about spiritual gifts, if I were to say, hey, what's your spiritual gift? And you're like, I don't even know what that is. Then what we would like to do is um, help you determine what that is. So we have the spiritual gifts assessment. Um, you can uh, snap that QR code and fill that out. When you do, um, the results will come to you and to me. And so then we, we can look at this together and we can say, hey, based on these gifts, here's some things maybe you can do to contribute to the church family. But you might have gifts that are not on, on the list, you know? Maybe, maybe caring for, for young children is not a gift that shows up on this assess, assessment, but you're really good at it and, and you're passionate about it. If that's the case, then like, let's leverage that for the blessing of, of the church family. Uh, you, some of you have a gift for earning money. You're just really good at it. And you have a passion for being generous with that. Like, let's leverage that for the church family, for a way to expand the kingdom of God. Like, there's a lot of different gifts that may or may not show up on this assessment list, but this is a good starting place if you don't know where to start. So I invite you to do that. If you're like, what is that fuzzy black box there? Um, then that's a QR code. You don't, don't worry about it. We have paper copies in the back and we're happy to give you a paper copy and you can use that instead. But what... What we wanna do is, is when Paul talks about us living this life worthy of the calling we've received, remember chapter four, verse one, unity and contribution uh, is, is where we start with understanding like, okay, God has saved me by grace through faith so that I can be a part of a church that's growing in unity and I can contribute to us reflecting the nature and character of God here. That's, that's our part. So, um, we're gonna take a minute and we're gonna pray for each other. This prayer, I told you we would come back to the end of chapter three. So end of chapter three, uh, verses 16 through 21 is just a prayer that Paul prays for all of these believers. I mean, there are people that he knows and people that he doesn't know in this audience that are gonna hear this prayer. And he is praying this. I mean, you can just hear his heart for these people as he prays this prayer. We're gonna pray this prayer for each other. So what I'd love for you to do, I mean, if you're with somebody that you're close to, you can put a hand on a shoulder or grab a hand or, or whatever. If you're on your own, I want you to think about somebody that you love and care about that you wanna pray this prayer for. And we're gonna pray this prayer um, together, out loud. Are you ready? I pray 
that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.